Well, greetings and welcome to the Logical Belief Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Jason Mullett. You can visit our website at logicalbelief.org. You can watch these podcasts on YouTube. You can search for and subscribe to my channel there. Uh, you can also find me on iTunes uh, from your favorite podcast catcher. You can just search for Logical Belief. You should be able to find us and subscribe to the audio feed there. Um, if you have any questions or any comments or words of encouragement, uh, you can send those to jason at logicalbelief.org. You can also do that from the contact page on the website. If you want to see any previous uh, or past uh, episodes, you can just go to the website and click on podcast. All the previous episodes are listed there, both the audio and the video, and you can watch them there. Now, just be aware, if you send me a message, uh, that you are giving me permission to read it on the air. Alrighty, well, last week... I did an episode uh, entitled, Do Atheists Lack a Belief in God? So we went over that particular topic. Uh, many atheists today, uh, in an attempt to uh, avoid cross-examination, uh, an attempt to avoid taking a positive uh, or making a positive assertion about the existence of God, they just claim that they they just lack uh, any sort of belief in any gods whatsoever. And so uh, they're not saying that a god, a particular god, does not exist. Um, and they're not affirming that he does exist. They just have a complete lack of belief, is what they claim. So I addressed this last week and I went over that particular argument. And uh, I demonstrated how it's not defensible. It's not a defensible position for which the atheist can even back into. Uh, it's an uh, illogical position in which he has to conflate terms, um, and uh, he's also putting himself into a self-refuting position where he claims to um, lack a belief in a concept which he then describes, uh, which means that he understands the concept, so he doesn't have a lack of belief in, uh, or has, has no belief in relation to the concept whatsoever. So I went over that, and I had given uh, three arguments that can be used uh, against this particular claim. And after doing the episode, I went back and I, I modified a few of them, one in particular, and um, because in throwing together the presentation in a few minutes or about an hour before I did the presentation and I did the podcast, uh, it just doesn't give you enough time to properly edit things and make sure that you have everything exactly how you want them. So um, I went back and I made a few corrections. So if you do look at the presentation, which I linked on the website, uh, the PDF I made available for the presentation that I went through, uh, you might see a few differences uh, than from the uh, the episode. So I just want you to be aware of that in case you take a look at that and say, okay, this looks just a little different. So I'll just go over the three arguments really quick again, uh, just to refresh, um, and I'll point out the one that I made a little bit of a change on. So the first argument was one uh, inspired by Matt Slick from CARM.org, and I formulated it in this way. I made the major premise, um, I, I formulated them into logical syllogisms, and I made the major premise, uh, we cannot act upon concepts of which we have a lack of belief. That's my major premise. My minor premise is atheists act upon their claimed lack of belief. The conclusion, therefore, is that atheists do not have a lack of belief. And then the second argument I gave uh, was a few slides later. Um... I said, uh, major premise, to lack a belief about God is to be ignorant of the concept of God. Uh, the minor premise, atheists are not ignorant of the concept of God because Christians are very willing to explain to them the Christian concept of God. So they're not ignorant of the concept of God. So conclusion, therefore, atheists do not lack a belief about God. And then the third argument that I gave uh, which is one I, I changed the second premise here a little bit. I don't even remember what the first one was, but if you go back to the presentation, you can see it. Uh, the major premise was to believe or not to believe are both beliefs. Um, minor premise, atheists do not believe in the concept of God. 
conclusion, therefore atheists have a belief about God. So those were uh, the um, arguments I gave last week. If you're interested in that and you didn't listen to that episode, go back and check that out in case uh, you encounter uh, some atheists that try to run for the tall grass with this particular argument, hide behind the curtains, and uh, you can uh, you there's some arguments there to uh, to help you with exposing what they're trying to do. So today, what I'm going to do in this particular episode is I'm going to kind of deviate from my typical um, path that I've normally taken on this podcast. Uh, most of the episodes that I've done uh, on the Logical Belief Ministries podcast is uh, in regards to apologetics, mostly um, in dealing with essential doctrines of the Christian faith and providing a defense for those particular doctrines and um, and dealing with arguments against them and uh, addressing those things, uh, doing a clear presentation of the gospel, explaining what the gospel is, and uh, and having an understanding of those things. Well, today we're going to veer a little bit, and we're going to go off into a topic that I have actually studied for quite a few years, and I've come to quite a, quite a strong uh, belief in. I, I don't think I have everything possibly right with this, but I, I think that um, <clears throat> there is a lot of validity to what I'm going to present today. So this is not something that uh, um, I would die on this hill that I'm going to present, but I find it to be a topic uh, that's very interesting and uh, does have ramifications and implications today. And so what we're going to be talking about today is Genesis chapter 6. And what is Genesis chapter 6 talking about? This is one of those passages that many find to be difficult, uh, not really uh, knowing how to exactly to deal with it. And I am going to uh, uh, veer away from the, the typical uh, Reformed understanding of this particular text of Scripture. Now, there are many Reformed people that do hold the position that I do on this passage. However, we are not in the majority on this. So, my Reformed brothers out there, uh, re please refrain from throwing any stones after this episode. But uh, I'm going to just present what I believe Genesis 6 is speaking about, what it's talking about. Uh, we're going to go over some of the arguments for it, some of the arguments against, and uh, just uh, see where this takes us. So if this is something that has interested you in the past, you, you didn't really know what Genesis 6 was talking about, maybe you don't even know what I'm talking about yet with Genesis 6, uh, just hang on tight and we will go uh, through this passage and we will see uh, exactly what it is talking about. So uh, to start off, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read the passage from the ESV, and we'll read on down to um, probably about verse 11 or 12. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe we'll read. Yeah, we'll, but maybe down to about uh, verse 14. So, uh, so I'll start reading at verse one of Genesis chapter six, and I'll be reading from the ESV version of the Bible. So, um, when men when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him in his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animal, creeping things, and birds of heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. 
These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. Okay. Well, that is the passage that we're talking about. So if you heard some things in that passage that were kind of interesting, um, you are correct. There are some very interesting things in this passage, and some that uh, theologians and uh, studiers of Scripture have wrestled with to try to understand um, throughout the, uh, both the uh, Jewish era and the Christian era. So the first thing that is contended often is in verse 2 of this chapter is, is the term sons of God. So who were the sons of God that saw the daughters of men? Now there's several different uh, interpretations of this. Uh, one of the most common among the Reformed uh, community, and really since Augustine, uh, is, is that the sons of God are the sons of Seth. Uh, it's the sons of Seth view. And the other view, and the one, w in, fa in fact, which I hold, is that uh, the sons of God here are angelic beings, are angels, in particular fallen angels. Uh, <clears throat> so the term that is... Uh, uh, translated uh, from the Hebrew here as sons of God is benai Elohim, uh, sons of God. It's the generic word in Hebrew for God, Elohim. So that is the term that's used here. So one of the first things that we should do is when we look at a term like benai Elohim is we should look elsewhere in Scripture to see how that particular term is used. When um, the term sons of God is used and you'll find something very interesting in Job we find this term used three times in the book of Job and in fact every time it is used in the book of Job it is in reference to angels and no one there's no argument for all three places in the book of Job where the term benai Elohim is used that it is not referring uh, to angels. There's no contention there. The, really the only contention is in Genesis chapter 6. And obviously the sons of Seth would not apply, that interpretation would not apply to um, Job um, the, uh, because this was post, Job is post-flood uh, and it's also uh, the application of just you know godly men uh, would not apply also in Job. So let's go ahead and read these verses. So in Job chapter 1, verse 6, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God, Benai Elohim, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So these are obviously angelic beings that are presenting themselves before the Lord, and Satan was among them. Satan is an angelic being. In Job chapter 2, it presents the same scenario again, and it says, and again, there was a day when the sons of God, Benai Elohim, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. So we have a second occurrence of a very similar event. This is when um, Satan was going before God and, and uh, basically condemning uh, Job and saying that, uh, that if, if all the things that God had blessed Job with were taken away, that Job would curse God to his face and um, but uh, but God tested Job through Satan and Job stood the test um, and so this here is obviously angelic beings we also see in Job 38 verse 4 where God is speaking here at the end of Job where he's giving Job his his lesson <laughs> he's explaining to Job about um, you know who are we as God's creatures, to speak back to our Creator. And he asked Job the question here, uh, beginning at verse 4, Where were you 
when I laid the foundation of the earth. He's asking Job this. Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So, once again, we have here the, in, where it's translated sons of God, it's the term benai Elohim. So, it's obvious this is angelic beings because this is creation week when the earth was being created. And so, there was no sons of Seth there at that time. There was no, there was no, man didn't exist yet. Man was created on day six. So, when uh, the stars were created, when the earth was created, when God stretched uh, the line of the division between night and day upon the earth, um, all those things, um, the angels were there, and they sang together, and the sons of God, the angelic beings, shouted for joy as God created the earth. So, this is obvious that the trans, the understanding of Genesis 6 as understanding these angelic beings is not an is not an abiblical position. It's a position which does hold water uh, when it comes to the use of that term elsewhere in Scripture. So let's just actually look on through Genesis chapter 6, and let's, let's see what uh, in the next verse. So it says here, The sons of God, so angelic beings, saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. So this is something that they did. It was not um, it was not something that was done in cooperation with man. It was probably more of a forceful thing where they took uh, human women as they chose. Uh, then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in men forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. And then it says, The Nephilim, which is a Hebrew word, uh, were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Um, I actually have my MacArthur Study Bible, so I wanted to see what actually John MacArthur said about this. You don't think my my uh, position on this text is, is uh, completely whacked out. Uh, John MacArthur on verse... Um, uh, 2 of Genesis chapter 6 says this. Now, he has a very interesting um, application to verse 4, but let's at least see what he says here about verse 2. It says, The sons of God and daughters of men. The sons of God identified elsewhere were almost exclusively as angels. And he actually points out to the same three verses in Job that I do. Job 1.6, Job 2.1, Job 38.7. Saw and took wives of the human race. This produced an a natural union which violated God's ordained order of human marriage and procreation, Genesis 2.24. Some have argued that the sons of God were the sons of Seth, who cohabited with the daughters of Cain. Others suggest that they were perhaps human kings, wanting to build harems. But the passage puts strong emphasis on the angelic versus human contrast. The New Testament places this account in sequence with other Genesis events as and identifies it has fallen angels who are indwelt. And then we'll look over these passages, but he references 2 Peter 2, 4 and 5 and Jude 6. Uh, Matthew twenty two thirty does not necessarily, and that's uh, where Jesus mentioned that um, uh, the angels in heaven do not marry, uh, does not necessarily negate the possibility of angels are capable of procreation, but just that they do not marry. To procreate physically, they had to possess human male bodies. So MacArthur's position on here is slightly different than mine. Um, I think I think what he's saying here is that they actually possessed um, kind of like a demonic spirit. They possessed uh, human males, and that is how they um, they procreated and took wives of the children of men. Uh, but that's not what the verse says. It actually does say that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, and they were the ones that took wives. They didn't, they didn't embody or inhabit human men and take, um, and, and take possession of their body and then uh, procreate with women that way. Um, so I would, I would disagree with his assertion there. But in verse 4, he says this, which is actually a very interesting 
uh, perspective that I actually had really never heard of before until I read it here in his uh, in his study Bible. But in verse four, MacArthur says, uh, "Nephilim." The word is from the root meaning to fall, indicate that they were strong men who fell on others in the sense of overpowering them. The only other use of this term is in Numbers thirteen thirty three. They were already in the earth when the mighty men and men of renown were born. The fallen ones are not the offspring from the union of Genesis 6, verses 1 and 2, which I thought that's a very interesting perspective because uh, that's uh, kind of deviating from any historical understanding of this particular text. Um, and I think just a plain reading of it would would appear that these Nephilim are the offspring of this union that just took place. Uh, seems to me fairly clear, but uh, MacArthur seems to say here that the Nephilim here are not necessarily the offspring of these angelic beings and the daughters of men. So, so let's let's jump in here and let's see. So let's look at the word Nephilim, which he kind of mentioned it here, but it it means in and um, if you look it up in Strong's, I think this is a Strong's definition I put here, but it says uh, a, um, a bully, a tyrant, or a giant um, is what the word Nephilim means. And in Genesis chapter 6 here, it says that it says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. So I, I find it interesting here that MacArthur is saying here that so these children born among the angelic beings and the daughters of men is just a completely separate, loose statement about some other children that are not related to the Nephilim, which <laughs> it talks about in the beginning of the verse and also in the end of the verse. So um, I find that kind of an interesting way of looking at it. But uh, so, yeah, my position here is that the Nephilim here are the offspring of angelic beings and um, human women and that these were the mighty men who are of old men of renown. In fact, if you look to see what the ancient uh, Jewish understanding of this text was, is if you look in the Greek Septuagint, the Greek Septuagint actually translates um, as angelos or as angels uh, the occurrences of sons of God here in Genesis chapter 6. So that tells us that Jewish scholars um, before the time of Christ uh, considered it's strong enough evidence that uh, Genesis chapter 6 was referring to angelic beings that they actually translated it as actually being angels. So there's no ambiguity there in the Septuagint. Um, also, I'm going to grab my um, uh, edition here of Josephus, and Josephus himself... If you're familiar with him, in Book 1, Chapter 3, Section 1, uh, gives his comments about this text. And it says, For many angels of God, accompanied with women, begat sons that improved unjust and despised of all that was good, on account of the confidence they had in their own strength. For tradition is that these men did what resembled the acts of those whom the Grecians called giants. So, you know, obviously Josephus here believes that the Nephilim were the descendants of this unholy union, and that, uh, and this was also the position of the translators of the Septuagint, and uh, also of many of the early church fathers. And we'll we'll look through some of those. So let's uh, jump back here. Um, okay, so I want to look elsewhere. Where else? In Scripture, and MacArthur mentioned it in his commentary on Genesis chapter six, verse four. He mentioned Numbers thirteen thirty-three. Now, this was uh, the passage where, when Moses and the children of Israel were approaching the land of Canaan the first time, and Moses sent in spies, sent in the twelve spies. I'm sure you guys are all familiar with the story. And this is where this is within the report. Genesis or Numbers thirteen thirty-three here is within the report that the spies came back and gave. Uh, to the children of Israel about the land of Canaan. And this is what they said in verse Numbers 13, verse 33. And there we saw the Nephilim. Once again, it's the only two cases. By the, word, by the way, the term Nephilim is only used twice in the entire New Testament. It's used in Genesis 6, 
uh, verse uh, 4, and it's also used in Numbers 13.33, the only two occurrences of it. And it says, And there were also the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, so we seemed to them. So these were obviously giant people. These were very large people. And we'll go through some even more arguments for that, and I'll, I'll demonstrate that. But my argument against even MacArthur's position here, where the Nephilim are not the offspring of these angelic beings, uh, and also the sons of Seth or the, um, the, the king's argument that the sons of God here were, were, were a kingly class, uh, which is another uh, less known uh, argument for that passage, is that when <laughs> does a good guy marrying a bad girl produce a large giant? That just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense for a kingly class of men marrying the daughters of men, and it produced very large men. That that just seems really odd, um, uh, odd conclusion. Uh, obviously, the Nephilim uh, were giants. They were extremely large. Uh, we'll even look at King Og of Bashan, which was likely around 15 feet, and he was of the descendants. So the earlier ones were probably even larger. So sons of God being the uh, sons of Seth means, okay, the good guys marry bad girls, produce giants. Um, that happens today, and good guys marry bad girls, and it doesn't produce giants. So I, th I find that argument to just be very, uh, very weak. Um so let's let's just kind of trace through um from Genesis or from Numbers 13:33 let's kind of trace through some of the Old Testament passages and let's see what else these Nep Nephilim or Nephilim are called uh so that we can kind of track them through the Old Testament uh passages especially during the conquest of Canaan and in Numbers 13.33, I'll read it again. And we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. So it's used there twice in that passage. And we seem to ourselves as grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. So let's look where else the Anakim, or the, the descendants of Anak, um, are. In Deuteronomy 2, verse 10, it says, The Amim formerly lived there, a people great and many, tall as the Anakim. So notice here, the Amim are also a, a descendants of the Nephilim. Um, they are like the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they, also, they are also counted as Raphaim, but the Moabites called them Amim. So notice here we have some, a lot of synonymous terms here. A lot of these different uh, people groups, uh, tribes and nations during the time of the conquest of Canaan and prior to that had names for these giant people that lived uh, in the land. They called them the Emim, they called them the Anakim, they called them the Raphaim. And actually, as we go through, you'll notice that the term Raphaim is the most common used term uh, for them. And Deuteronomy 2, 2 verse 20, and it says, it is also counted as a land of Raphaim. Raphaim also means giant, but it is also counted as a land of Raphaim. Raphaim for, formerly lived there, but the Amorites called them the Zamzumim, a people great and many and tall as the Anakim. But the Lord destroyed them before the Ammonites, and they disposed them and settled in their place. So notice here the, that God um, had an intention to destroy these giant people, these Raphaim, these Anakim, these descendants of Anak, these Nephilim, he has an intention to destroy them. And he even uses the Ammonites to destroy them. And we see God destroyed them in the flood. Um, and then later destroys them using the Ammonites and the children of Israel. So in Deuteronomy 3 verse 20, it here is talking about King Og of Bashan. 
And it says here that he was left of the remnant of the Raphaim. And so by the time the children of Israel had approached the land of Canaan, um, a lot of the Raphaim had, had been wiped out. Uh, I think that there was a, a lot less of them, but there was still enough of them to definitely scare the children of Israel. And it says, uh, and, and we actually see as further as we go through history, the time of the judges, and then in the time of King David, there's very few of them left. Uh, David probably was the one who uh, wiped out probably most of the, the remainder, those who were left. So uh, Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 20, it is also counted as the land of the Raphaim. Raphaim formerly lived there, but the Ammonites called them, uh, well, actually, I read that verse already, um, the Zamzumin. So we see here, they're called the Zamzumin, they're called the Raphaim, they're called the Amim, they're called the Anakim, uh, the sons of Anak, and the Nephilim. Um, in Deuteronomy 3, verse uh, 10, it says, All the cities of the Tableland, and all Gilead, and all Bashan, as far as Salkah and Adri, cities of the kingdom of Og uh, in Bashan, for only Og... The king of Bashan was left of the remnant of the Raphaim. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. It is, is it not? So this is the writer of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses. Um, he's saying here, is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? So notice uh, in the previous chapter in Deuteronomy in verse um, 21, it says the Lord destroyed the Raphaim. By using the Ammonites. But then it says here that is not this king, Og of Bashan, behold his bed was a bed of iron. Is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? So it looks like the Ammonites had captured uh, this particular king's bed. And it says nine cubits was its length, four cubits is its breadth, according to the common cubit. So the cubit here that's probably referred to in Deuteronomy is probably the Egyptian cubit. Um, as we can uh, tell from, I think it's um, Stephen's sermon uh, in the book of Acts about Moses saying that he was taught in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And if Moses was the author of Deuteronomy, which we believe he was, uh, Jesus says that he was, um, that the cubit probably used here was the Egyptian cubit. Now, the Egyptian cubit ranges anywhere from 20 inches uh, 0.62 to around 6.5 uh, uh, inches in length. So if we take that particular dimension and we look at the size of this bed, this bed was likely around 15 feet 6 inches in length. So the king was obviously at least a little bit shorter than that, but he was probably somewhere around 15 feet in length. Um, which is significantly taller than Goliath. Goliath was anywhere from 10 feet 4 inches to around 10 and a half feet. And so uh, King Og was, um, was most likely quite a bit bigger than that, about uh, 5 feet taller, 4 and a half feet taller than, than, um, than Goliath was. So uh, we can see here also he was left of the remnant of the Raphaim. So... He's a, he's a descendant um, of them. Um, so, you know, he's probably not uh, the tallest. Uh, so they were, they were probably taller than that. Uh, if you go down to um, the next, jump down one verse, it says in Deuteronomy 3.13, The rest of Gilead and all Bashan, the kingdom of Og, that is the region of Argob, I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh. All the portion of Bashan is called the land of the Raphaim. So the kingdom of Og, um, the area of Bashan, where this king was uh, ruler, uh, was known as the land of the Raphaim. So we also can see that there was another group of people that were most likely mostly Raphaim, and this is the Amorites. Um, if we look in Deuteronomy 4, verse 46, now this becomes really interesting to me here. In Deuteronomy 4, verse 40, 46, it says, Across the Jordan in the valley opposite Beth Peor in the land of Sion, king of the Amorites, who lived at 
Heshbon, whom Moses and the sons of Israel defeated when they came out of Egypt. They took possession of his land and the land of Og, king of Bashan, the two kings of the Amorites, who were across the Jordan to the east. So according to Deuteronomy 4, 46 and 47, it appears that Sion and King Og of Bashan were both kings of the Amorites. Um, and it says, and this is further confirmed in Joshua 2, verse 10. It says, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and when you, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. So Joshua 2.10 makes it definitive here that, uh, that Og and Sion were kings of the Amorites. And Og was definitely um, one of the Raphaim. So we don't know if all the Amorites were, um, were Raphaim, but at least uh, a certain uh, percentage of them were. Now, I find it interesting that when God made his covenant with Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15 and uh, Abraham uh, prepared the offering uh, to, to uh, do the covenant with God uh, beginning at verse 12 here and as the sun was going down a deep sleep fell on Abraham or Abra, uh, Abram remember just before that he was chasing the birds away from um, the animals that had been divided in half uh, to establish the covenant and it says, And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs, and will be a servant there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now this is speaking of the time that the children of Israel would be in the land of Egypt, and they would come out with great possessions. And then he says that there's a reason for this duration of time as for you you shall go to your fathers in peace you shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come out here in the fourth generation speaking of the children of israel for the iniquity of the amorites is not yet complete it's very interesting it's very interesting and we see here that sion and og were kings of these amorites and they were destroyed by the children of israel um, we see also something very interesting in the book of Amos. In the book of Amos, the Amorites are mentioned again. And in Amos 2, verse 9, it says, Yet it was I who, this is God speaking, Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, speaking of the children of Israel, whose height was like the height of cedars, who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his, and his roots beneath. So, in Numbers 13.33, we see that the children of Israel said they were like grasshoppers in their sight. And God himself here says that they, were, they had a height like the height of cedars. Now, <laughs> that's pretty tall. I mean, I don't, I don't think uh, God engages in um, embellishment. Uh, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't tell fish stories like, like we do, um, you know. I, I caught a fish as big as a car uh, door handle. Uh, you know, we don't, <laughs> God doesn't have to do that stuff. Uh, he, uh, he, you know, just tells the truth. And so in Amos 2.9 here, we see that God says that the Amorites were, had a height that was similar to the height of cedars. Now that's, that's pretty tall. Um, but that is, uh, that is what the text says. So the Amorites appear to be um, at least partially um, have have members in them, uh, part of their population, be Nephi, Nephiim or uh, the Raphaim, which uh, we can see uh, go back to uh, the Genesis chapter 6 event. So there's several different understandings of how did the Nephilim, if they were all destroyed in the flood, there's two different views. There's what's called the second incursion view that these angels that, um, as it says in um, Jude, uh, I believe it's verse 6, and it says, And the angels do not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal change into gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities 
which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example of undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Um, so notice here that Jude here uh, says that they left their uh, proper dwelling of authority, these angelic beings. And so there's two, there's two theories. Uh, one is that, that there was a second incursion of this that occurred post-flood, and you have the pre-flood event in Genesis chapter 6. There's another view that says that possibly uh, some or maybe all of um, the, the wives of Noah's sons had uh, some of this uh, genetic um, uh, mixture within them. And it was preserved through one of the lines of one of the sons, possibly. I mean, that, that's another view. Uh, there's a second incursion view. I actually tend to lean towards possibly that uh, one or maybe more of the wives of the sons of Noah were possibly uh, corrupted, and God finished the wiping out of this um, satanic race uh, with the children of Israel. So that's kind of where I lean, but uh, it's, not, uh, it's not a hill I would die on. Uh, one of the other things I find very interesting in Genesis chapter 6 is going down to um, verse 9. And it says, and these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. Then it says, blameless in his generation or generations. In the King James, uh, let's see if I can find it here. I thought I put this verse down. I actually didn't even put that verse. Let me look up that verse real quick. Um, in the King James, let me transition here. Uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse um, verse 9. It says, And these are the generations of Noah. Noah is a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. So the word perfect here is the um, Hebrew word tamim which means without blemish or, or no blemish, perfect, uh, sincere, uh, is kind of the semantic domain that this falls into. If you do a word search in the Old Testament for where the word tamim is used, uh, you'll see that most often it is actually used to uh, demonstrate genetic purity. In fact, it's used um, most often in like the book of Leviticus where it comes to Noting that a sacrificial animal is is perfect, uh, so that it can be sacrificed to God, and so it it has a in part of its semantic domain, it does have the meaning of genetic purity, and so it's interesting here that in verse um, nine here it says that Noah was perfect in his generations, so it does seem to give a hint here that. Uh, that possibly Noah did not have this particular corruption uh, within his genetic line, within his generations, as we see that occurred earlier in the chapter with the sons of God coming down and cohabiting with the daughters of men. So uh, that's another uh, thing to look at. We also see uh, the Raphaim uh, still existing um, in the time of David, David and his uh, mighty men. Uh, I'll read you Second Samuel 21, uh, verses 15 through 22. And it says, And there was a war between the Philistines and Israel, and David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines, and David grew weary. And Ishbi Benab, one of the descendants of the giants, and if you look at the Hebrew word here, it's the Raphaim, or Rapha, whose spear weighed so obviously this is a giant um whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze and was armed with a new sword thought to kill david but abishah the son of zeruiah came to his aid and attacked the philistine and killed him when david's men swore to him you shall no longer go out with us to battle lest you quench the lamp of israel after this there was again a war with the philistines at gob then 
Sebekia, the Hush Hushathite, struck down Saf, who was one of the descendants of the giants. Once again, it's the word Rapha or Raphaim. And there were was again war with the Philistines at Gob, and Elhanah the son of Jeroorgim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft uh, uh, of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was again war at Gath, uh, where there was a man of great statue who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number. And he was also descendant from the giants, the Raphaim. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan the son of uh, Shimea, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants, once again the Raphaim and Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. <clears throat> so uh, we also see this confirmed once again in First Chronicles 20 verse 4, and there arose a war with the Philistines in Gezar, and Sebekiah the Hushathite struck down Sipiah, who was one of the descendants of the giants, the Raphaim. And the Philistines were subdu subdued, and there was again a war with the Philistines. And Elhanah, the son of Jer, struck down Lami, the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was again a war at Gath, and there was a man of great stature, had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each feet, 24 in number. And he was also a descendant from the giant, uh, the Rapha. And when he taunted Israel... Uh, Jonathan, the son of Shimea, uh, David's brother, struck him down, and they and these were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and the hand of his servants. So we see David and his mighty men here just making mincemeat of these Rapha, Raphaim giants. The other thing that you see interesting here is the six fingers and six toes that these men have. It's very interesting that uh, Native Americans and even um, large skeletons have been found in the uh, North America that um, uh, were seemed to be a race of red-headed giant men ranging from 8 feet 10 and even taller uh, that had six fingers and six toes. Uh, uh, Native Indians uh, talk about this all the time. So it's interesting that that correlates with the biblical... Um, uh, message here. Um, the other thing that I thought interesting was in Josephus again, and this is in, let me jump down here in book five, chapter two, let me find that. Um, Josephus mentions this also. This is after uh, jo the death of Joshua. Uh, Josephus notes here in uh, book five, chapter two, section uh, three, it says here uh, for uh, for which reason they removed their camp to Hebron and or Hebron, and when they had taken it, they slew all the inhabitants. And this is the children of Israel. There will till then left the race of giants, who had bodies so large and a countenance so entirely different from other men, that they were surprising to the sight and terrible to the hearing. The bones of these men are still shown to this very day unlike to any credible relations to other men. So Josephus here is saying that they had a uh, countenance or they had an appearance that was just entirely different from other men. It's very interesting that these red-headed giants in North America um, are often claimed to have double rows of teeth even, um, the, the, the skulls, and, and it's reported by the inhabitants. So obviously um, obviously some differences there. Uh, and Josephus actually makes the claim here that these bones of these men were still shown to this very day. So at the time of his writing, um, some of the Jews and possibly even the Romans and the Grecians knew where some of these large bones were. And maybe this is even the source of a lot of the myths uh, that come from the Greeks about giant men and also the, the myths of the Titans and things like that. So um, let's uh, quickly look here um, to what the New Testament uh, says about these events. Uh, two New Testament authors seem to indicate um, this occurrence in Genesis chapter 6. 
And the first passage is in Second Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. It says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So we see here that Peter uh, believes that there was angels who sinned. He doesn't say what the sin is, but they were cast into hell and committed unto chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. So we all know biblically that there's still fallen angels that are not in uh, hell right now. They're not in chains uh, right now. Um, they are still active spirits working uh, against um, their spiritual forces in dark places that work against us as Christians, work against the authority of God. Um, they still exist out there, but they're not in hell. They're not bound up in chains. But there are seemingly some angels here who sinned in a particular way, and God has cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. So there are angels that are already in that state of being chained up and being kept until judgment. In Jude 6, it becomes a little bit more clear, and it says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling. It's very interesting. So these are particular angels who did not stay within their proper domain. Um, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Um, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which were likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example of undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So it's very interesting that that Jude here seems to correlate what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah to also these angels. And it's very interesting that right I mean, you guys should know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, how the angels of the Lord came to Sodom and Gomorrah to warn Lot and his family to flee the city because of God's impending destruction of the city. And what did the men of the city want to do? They wanted to have sexual relations with these beings. Um, it's, it's interesting how the King James actually translates Jude, verse 7 here. It says, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities." about them in like manner, in like manner to these angels that he was just previously talking about, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth in his example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So um, it's, it's interesting here that it, it appears possibly that the men of Sodom and Gomorrah actually knew that these were angelic beings, and they actually desired to go after flesh that was different than human flesh and that this is the same thing Jude is saying here that occurred with these angels who also left their uh, position of authority left their proper dwelling place and it's it seems very strongly here that Jude is referring here to Genesis 6 what happened in Genesis chapter 6 uh, these sons of God um, who uh, came down and, and dwelt with the daughters of men, and the Nephilim were born as a result of that unholy union. Um, uh, often an objection that is made, and I already mentioned this, is Matthew 22, verse 30, where Jesus says in response to the Sadducees when it came to their question on um, marriage, it says, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. I think what's significant here is Jesus' term in heaven. Uh, if we notice here that the angels in Jude chapter 6 um, is referring to those who left their proper dwelling. Uh, they left their position of authority, they left their proper dwelling, and they came into earth and they did procreate with women. I don't think Jesus' assertion here about the angels in heaven are not given in marriage. I don't believe angels in heaven procreate, but those who left their proper abode um appears to have been able to do that. We also see in the Old Testament constantly that angels, even from God, take upon themselves human form, uh, a form very similar to uh, to to men. Um, <clears throat> so just some things to think about there. So uh, we see that um, some also some, some interesting things. Uh, Jesus makes mention of this in his Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24, verse 37. He says, that as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be when the coming of the Son of Man. Now, you know, different people with different eschatological, 
eschatological positions will look at this text uh, a little differently. You know, a partial preterist will say that, well, you know, this this is referring to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Okay, well, you know, if that's if that's your position, then this doesn't apply. But if you are a historic pre-mill or even uh, dispensational pre-mill, uh, you would, and even some amillennialists uh, that don't hold to the full preterist view, um, and there's different flavors of preterism, but might say that this uh, text here is referring to Christ's second coming, which is what I believe uh, it is referring to. And it's saying here that when Christ returns in his second coming, that it will be as it was in the days of Noah. So what exactly did Jesus mean by that? Is there, um, is there going to be some sort of an incursion? I mean, we, we do see um, a lot of reports of, uh, of things like aliens and, and all that. Uh, I, would, I would attribute all that to demonic forces. Um, so there, there may be some validity to that. Uh, we see in uh, Daniel chapter 2, when Daniel is explaining to Nebuchadnezzar his vision, his, uh, his vision of the image that he saw. And it says something very interesting in verse 43 of Daniel's explanation of the, the feet who are partly iron and partly clay. It says in verse 43, it says, And as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix one another in marriage. But they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And that was in the ESV. I'll read it to you in the King James. The King James has a very interesting rendering on this. It says in verse 43, And whereas they, thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. So there's a they here that's mentioned by Daniel. But he doesn't really describe what this pronoun is referring to. It doesn't really seem to have an antecedent anywhere in the passage that's referring to. It just says they will mingle themselves with the seed of men. So obviously this is not this is not men mingling with the seed of men, but this is something else mingling with the seed of men. So this may be a hint um, also um, of this. So it's it's something to... Uh, to think about. So we we looked at uh, what Josephus uh, thought about, and we looked at what the Septuagint translators uh, thought. Uh, they all thought these were angels. Um, Josephus believed that uh, the angels uh, produced an offspring called the Nephilim, uh, the Raphaim. Um, and so we see a um, really a consistency really all Jewish commentators from what I can tell of uh, everything prior to the time of Christ all believed that these were angelic beings and it, and it really appears that Jude and Peter also believed the same thing um, we see some of the a lot of the early church fathers believe this too Tertullian um, uh, believe that some angels fell through the lust of women and referred to their offspring as more wicked demon brood. We have uh, uh, Justin Martyr in his second apology in chapter 5-3. Um, he actually believes, uh, and this is something that would come from the book of Enoch. Um, the book of Enoch is actually a very interesting text. We can talk about that briefly here. But in um, in Justin's Martyr's second apology in Chapter 5, I'll just read down through here. But if someone would entertain the thought that we confess God as uh, we sh as Ali we should, not as we say, be seized and punished by unjust men, even this I will resolve for you. God having made all the universe and having put in subjection earthly things unto men and arranging the heavenly elements for the growing of crops and changing of seasons, even marshalling a divine law for these which likewise it appears he has made for the ta the sake of men but the oversight of men and the things under heaven he committed to angels whom he set over them now angels going beyond this arrangement were overcome by intercourse with women and they produce children which are called um damions which is basically it's demons uh justin martyr thought that the offspring that they produced are the demons that we know of today and that is a common view among those who hold that the Nephilim is that demons are not fallen angels. They're actually disembodied spirits of the Nephilim 
who were either killed in the flood or even those that were killed after um, the time uh, or during the time of the Canaan conquest uh, is that's actually what demons are, that they're the disembodied spirits of those uh, Nephilim. Um, and he goes on, and besides the rest, they enslaved the human race to themselves, partly by magic writings and partly by fears and punishment they brought upon them and partly by the teachings regarding sacrifice, incense, uh, incense and libations, which they had come to need after being enslaved to the passion of desires. And among men, they sowed murders, wars, adulteries, unrestraint, and all evil. So Justin Martyr um, appears that he thought Genesis 6 um, and and... He actually is, it appears here he has some knowledge of the book of Enoch. Uh, it's interesting that Jude quotes from the book of Enoch. Um, in, if I can find it here. Yeah, there it is. In Jude, chap, uh, in Jude uh, verse 14, it says, and, also, and was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. We see in the book of Enoch, chapter 1, verse 9, it says, And behold, he comes with ten thousand holy ones to execute judgment upon them and destroy the impious and to contend with all flesh concerning everything that sinners and the impious have done and wrought against him. We notice here that Jude is obviously quoting from verse 9 of the book of Enoch here. So, I don't believe the book of Enoch is scripture in any way. Um, you know, Paul quoted from uh, Greek philosophers. Uh, there are some quotes from the apocryphal books. Uh, however, the writers of the New Testament never said in the scripture says with any of those particular references. So I don't believe that the book of Enoch is in any way scripture. But obviously, Jude here thought it at least had some merit. And um, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, um, he did quote that particular verse. So I don't dismiss the book of Enoch um, completely. Uh, the book of Enoch uh, holds really to the same thing Justin Martyr said, is that the um, the offspring of the fallen angels and um, women, the Nephilim, um, the disembodied spirits are the demons uh, that or um, what we know as demons today. So like I said, that's not a hill I'll die on because I can't really make a strong biblical argument for it, but I would say that that is a possibility. Uh, there is a possibility that that is true, that what we know as demons today are actually that. Uh, Irenaeus uh, believed that Genesis 6 was also um, angels. Uh, Eusebius um, believed that they were angelic beings. Uh, some of the early church fathers that did not believe that uh, was uh, John Chrysostom, um, he actually, in one of his sermons, uh, argued that um, they were the descendants of Seth. Um, and uh, he did say something incorrect, though, in that sermon. He said that um, that the sons of God never means angels anywhere in the Bible, which he's actually incorrect, because in Job, the term Benai Elohim does refer to angelic beings uh, at least three times. So, um, and Augustine also was the one who... Uh, push the sons of Seth theory on this. So um, that's just some uh, things to think about, uh, just kind of scratch your head on and maybe do some more research on. Um, I have a book that I read quite a few years ago, uh, if I can find it over here, um, entitled uh, uh, Corrupting the Image by Douglas Hamp. Um, I would have obviously some issues, so I don't really endorse everything in this book. I have some issues with some of the things in this book, but uh, his chapter on um, the Nephilim and Genesis 6 is pretty it's pretty good. So if you want to check that out, um, obviously uh, read the rest of the book with discernment, uh, but, but look into this topic. Check it out. Uh, you know, do some research and, um, and look at uh, what a lot of the theories are on Genesis chapter 6 I just I I think the only one that's consistent um, is is really this position the sons of Seth and the the class of kings is I just don't think they hold water um, I don't believe that um, 
that particular type of union would result in all the Raphaim, the Nephilim, and things like that that we see in the Bible. The Bible does clearly teach that there were giants. You cannot deny that. Um, it's, it's very clear because uh, even some of their measurements and uh, dimensions are given. So um, we know that um, they even had six fingers and six toes, um, at least uh, some of them did. And uh, so, and we can see that uh, Jewish commentators and even Josephus said that the bones were still, could be seen in his day. And so uh, I'm sure Josephus uh, would not have made that particular claim if it wasn't something that he could have backed up because somebody could have just simply said, well, no, that's not true. You know, prove that. Uh, we we wouldn't make an argument for something that uh, isn't uh, isn't something that is available to us. So. Uh, very likely, Josephus actually did know where there were some bones of the Nephaim and the Raphaim that were still seen to his day. So that's some thoughts on that. Uh, <laughs> I know it's a little bit of a deviation from what I usually talk about. I hope that was interesting to you and uh, hope that intrigues you to do some more study and uh, see what else you can find on that particular topic. So. Hopefully that was uh, interesting and a blessing to you. Um, we'll be back next week, Lord willing, and uh, we'll continue on. Thank you. Have a good weekend. Don't you know that the unjust will not inherit God's kingdom? And through 